On today's episode of Mistaken Identity, we look at how great customer experiences are built while at the same time reducing the likelihood of fraud and risk with our guest, Carlos Marquez. Carlos is head of product management at Mobilium, a leading provider of telecom analytics for roaming, security, and risk management, and end-to-end domestic and roaming testing solutions. Carlos has over 15 years of experience across product marketing and product management, working with intricate software products to successfully launch them worldwide. We look at the digitization of physical credentials, like your driver's license or passport, and chat about how these trends are playing into building great products that customers love. This and much more coming up next on Mistaken Identity. This podcast is brought to you by Okta, your strategic partner for building awesome customer identity experiences. Discover how by visiting us at Okta.com. Welcome to today's episode where I'm joined with Carlos Marquez, who's head of product management at Mobilium. Carlos, welcome to the show. Very excited to have you here with us today. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here and accepting your invitation. Well, that's great. Maybe why don't you give our listeners some insight into what Mobilium does and what your role as head of product management of fraud and risk entails? So Mobilium is a software vendor that works on the telecom market. So we address specific solutions for telecoms. So Mobilium has been a name that uh, was used by venture capital to acquire different companies that operate on different areas within the telecom. Uh, I came from We Do Technologies. That was one of the companies that was acquired in the past. And we, within We Do Technologies, uh, I was working at that time at Product Marketing. So We Do was a company focused on revenue assurance and fraud. So we are talking about addressing uh, risk management for telecom. And from uh, product manage- from product marketing, I've moved into product management. And now here I am. <laughs> Here you are, head of product management at Mobilium. That's amazing. Um, thinking about some of those past experiences, Carlos, from WeDo and even some of your your other previous experiences, what what stood out the most from each experience? Would you say? I started working on sales, and I think. If you want to go into product management, being on sales, you have to taste a bit of the pain in order to be able to express your opinion when developing the products. So I started working on sales. From sales, I went into marketing because this was what I studied in college. And from marketing, I moved from programming in PowerPoint to go into the real programming languages and moving to engineering. That's amazing. And when we think about Mobilium, could you help the listeners understand how Mobilium helps your customers reduce fraud and risk? Risk management, it's one of the business units within Mobilium. As I told you before, Mobilium develops solutions for the telecom market. One of those solutions is risk products. And within the risk, we have two main areas. One is revenue assurance. Essentially, we are protecting against revenue leakage by doing automated auditing. And the other one is fraud management. Fraud management is different from revenue assurance because while on revenue assurance, you are losing money because you've committed some errors due to misconfiguration or any part of the process that you have might be missed. While in fraud, there is a deliberate attempt to explore the flaws in order to commit fraud and monetize it, essentially. 
Staying on that concept of risk management just for a second, what are some of the factors that you would say are impacting risk management overall, market factors, customer factors, et cetera? Risks come from different sides and um, the technology change for sure is one of the risks. So I'm going to give examples around the area that I know that is telecom. So for instance, when you change technology from 4G to 5, uh, 5G, for instance, uh, now you have full IP networks that uh, might be explored by fraudsters, okay? And uh, other ones are, for instance, business models. We understand that marketing creativity for creating new business models, of course, is relevant and important for developing the business itself. But fraudsters also look at opportunities to explore. So a lot of times we hear about scenarios where uh, there was a service that was created and someone was able to explore it to uh, get access, let's say, uh, free of charge by exploring uh, ports that are open and to access services without paying. So there, there is a lot of creativity in the market. Martin, uh, Martin teams are creative within telcos to create new products, but fraudsters are also very creative. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. I think from, you know, just the threat landscape in general, what are some, what are your thoughts on how identity, right, should play into understanding some of those risks and managing risks uh, overall? We tend to mention that subscription fraud is an is a door to commit a lot of frauds. So a lot of the fraud scenarios that uh, we know in the telecom industry start by getting fake IDs. You use fake IDs, you buy SIM cards, and from the SIM cards you are able to make calls without paying and. If you want to monetize it really quickly, what you do is you buy the SIM cards and you start making calls to premiumate numbers that you own and uh, you monetize it immediately. So this is one of the scenarios. In North America, there is another very well-known scenario that is the credit moves where someone is able to, to buy uh, devices with fake IDs and then they resell it. So these are some of the examples that you need to take care of. Could you give some examples of how folks should be thinking about identity for continuous control monitoring and also understanding overall digital risk? Now the physical identities and the digital identities are merging. So if you think about um, omnichannel experience, you might go into a store and uh, someone asks you for your ID to buy a service. But if you are coming from a website, most probably you will not be able to do those kind of checks. And if you want to accelerate the experience itself, you might even use uh, social media IDs in order to accelerate to the easiness of experience in acquiring products. So the two are merging. And at one point, you can start with one identity. Let's say you do a check on the physical identity and later you add an additional services, like, for instance, uh, Spotify to your existing account just by linking the physical with the digital identity. So things are merging and that is one of the examples. And you want to put the controls wherever is the, the channel that you are acquiring the customer. And depending on the channel, you have different risks. You have different scoring that you have to do. So what you have to do is design all the scenarios and see how to address them. Because at even one point, you might move from one scenario to another. Let me give you another example. Um, 
nowadays, phones are becoming almost like the passport. They are becoming, let's say, your identity. So you have information on your phone that uh, picks on some of your physical attributes. But uh, in some countries, if you are acquiring a new SIM card, you will need to, to give a physical proof of your identity. And you attach the two. And that is what is going to allow you to enable really fast access to new services like banking services or other services that might require identity checks. And picking on the omni-channel uh, that I was talking about, so you might start, let's say in Africa, they have mobile money where it works almost like peer-to-peer -peer, where you are able to use your top-ups to transform or let's say to change into money. And you might start on a peer-to-peer -peer mobile money account and later, let's say that the operator got the license to operate as a bank, you want to move from one scenario to another. So the identity checks will be different for the bank. So you need to identify the risks, you need to identify the controls, and that's why we talk about continuous control monitoring. Depending on the part of the process that you are coming, you will need to put the right controls in place. I always found that fascinating with how different emerging markets can be with respect to just, you know, their technology adoption and where they are, even with identity as well. I think one of those things that you identified is looking at how, you know, Eastern African countries, for example, with M-Pesa, you know, use that to pay for parking, to pay for everything. It's really their bank account. You know, airtime becomes their bank account. I've always found that really super interesting. Staying on that thought for a sec. You probably have some really great insight into how telcos and mobile phone users can act as an identity passport as well to access some of those services. What are your thoughts? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I fully agree, and I'm going to share some of my experiences. The first one that I'm going to, to share was uh, once I was on vacations in Tanzania, and I was surprised by the amount of Maasai that are using phones and social media. And uh, one of the things that they mentioned at that, uh, that time was that they would have to travel for 10 kilometers to charge the battery of the smartphones. They didn't have the money to make the calls, but they were accessing Facebook all the time. So um, most probably someone granted them access to Facebook free of charge and be able to collect some of the information for a certain part of the population. And... Um, the other example that you, you just mentioned, uh, how you are able to subscribe to some of these services, I think it was in Indonesia, in Asia, where I wanted to subscribe to a service similar to Uber. And usually when I travel, um, I use an app that allows you to download an eSIM. So every time that I'm traveling to a, a new country where I don't have roaming, so I download an eSIM, so it's a profile that uh, gets on my phone. But what you've seen is that some of these eSIMs don't provide a number and that works as a blocker because uh, you don't have a number so you are not able to confirm your identity when uh, you want to subscribe an application like Uber to receive uh, that message that allows to prove that you are the person that you're saying you are. I was not that happy in the beginning when I saw that happening, but uh, then I realized that for you to access some of these services, they will want the proof, the physical proof that you are that person. For you to get the number, you need to do the physical proof that you are the person that you are stating you are to acquire that number. So 
I, I tend to agree with that because nowadays you are able to to stack services one to another and um, you from the phone you are able to attach other devices, other services. So you want to get identity rights since they won because uh, it could become a mess uh, if you start to have problems there. It's such a good point too. I think it really highlights the fact that companies need to think about how they're being flexible with the identifiers that they provide within their applications, right? For a lot of folks, as you mentioned, in Tanzania, other places uh, you know, around the world, not just unique to Tanzania, a lot of the times their first experience on the internet is Facebook and they don't have a physical phone number um, you know, or a username or password. So you know, companies really need to think about from a login and a signup experience, how they can cater to some of those demographics by really providing those flexible uh, identifiers and flexible insights. You have sales teams on one side saying, we want fast onboarding, we need to get sales. But uh, on the other side, you have other teams that are looking at risks and saying, okay, you need to redesign the process better. Uh, you can open a bit the door in order to make it easy to get people on board, but you need to, to look at the risks. So uh, a lot of times, the problems that you have on telecom related to different fraud scenarios started by a subscription fraud error, okay? So it's an entry door in order for you to commit a lot of different types of fraud. Absolutely. One of the things that you touched on there was this digit, this concept of digitization of credentials, right? And I think, you know, in, in the industry, it's referred to as decentralized identity or verifiable credentials, et cetera, or passports or digital wallets, all part of that ecosystem. Could you give your thoughts on how you know, our phones digitize our credentials and, you know, how do verifiable credentials change that verification process? When you think about from the telecom perspective, you have the telecom services and you have the over the tops. So applications like Facebook, applications like WhatsApp, and they tend to correlate and each one of them have their own information that you want to correlate in order to make sense of an identity. So telcos are acquiring more and more physical identity for you to acquire a SIM. And then what you see is the SIM is going to be the final check to guarantee your identity. So it's a closed loop circle that you want to for sure complete. And one of the things that we also see in the market is that some of the industries and some of these over-the-tops trust on telco to get the identity right because they are not able to confirm the entire information. So a lot of people say, okay, telcos, uh, they are at the end, they are just going to be a dump pipe to provide communication. But they also have a level of trust that can be explored by other industries, okay? Um, you have information about the subscriber. So when you connect the SIM with the physical device, you are creating almost like a token that can be used by other industries to ver verify identity. Because while you have the SIM card, you are able to put also a password associated to that SIM. And the device at the same time is able to collect information, let's say from your fingerprint and uh, the two or even the more variables that you can add there all connected 
together with the information that you are collecting from social media, each one of them will be a different ingredient that you can mix and enrich to cook a meal in security. <laughs> and it's such a fascinating trend, right? Verifiable credentials. For for me, I, I think the adoption of that in your digital wallet is just such such an incredible thing. I mean, I don't want to have to carry around a wallet if I don't have to with my driver's license and you know my my bank cards and all of those things. I actually would really prefer it if it was in my phone. My phone is always with me as it is. And those those credentials being digitized, I think, is a really interesting thing. It opens up so many use cases from, you know, verifying uh, folks that you mentioned on telco networks. What if I could, you know, have a, uh, access to a verifiable credential around my driver's license and use that as a way to sign up, right? Um, or my birth certificate or whatever it happens to be. But I, I think it's really, we're just at sort of the beginning of, of where I think this technology with digital wallets and verifiable credentials is, is going to go. I agree. I have my driver's license in my phone. Uh, also, some governmental documents I have it on my phone. I fully agree with you. The only thing that uh, still remains as, let's say, a, a blocker for me is to change my primary SIM for uh, a software SIM. So sometimes I get concerned and travel abroad, so my phone dies and uh, I'm not able to change the SIM to another phone. So I'm still a bit concerned there, still a bit reluctant there, but I fully agree with you. So this capability for you to go uh, to go to have lunch and you forget your wallet and you pay with your phone, uh, and so you don't have your wallet and you, you, you get in front of a policeman. This is my driving license. I love it. At the same time, you need to get some concerns because you tend to attach some of these documents and some of your identities to other things. Let me pick on an example. You are able to unlock your car with your phone. Your car from there is able to attach with your garage. And the thing is, if you get it wrong at one point, what will be the snowball effect of all of these problems? So I think it's important to get the identity right. But if I want to kill the identity in some of the devices that I started to attach it, I also want to have that possibility and I want to have a 360 view uh, of all the identities that were attached, you know. Yeah, I feel like for me, just hearing you talk about that, that there's a there's a real theme of convenience that kind of comes out from there, right? You don't want you want a very convenient experience with your application, whether it's paying for a coffee at a cafe or groceries, or as you kind of mentioned, presenting your driver's license, et cetera, to a police officer should you get stopped. But I think you know one element that I, I'd really love to get your thoughts on is. You know, when you think about the customer experience, what are some things that make for a great customer experience with an application, in your opinion? I want to get it right since day one. I don't want to get into a process that someone designed that I'm not able to understand or that I have to memorize a lot of passwords or be concerned that I'm reusing the password again. So I want a seamless experience. I want something that is easy to do. I've seen this on banks more and more. So you are able to open a bank account without going to, uh, to, to the store. And I think they are making an amazing work here in on how they're creating this, uh, this experience. 
One of the things you kind of hit on too was this element of security as well, right? We obviously want to make things really convenient. We want to build incredible user experiences, but not at the expense of security. And for me, when you were talking, it really almost comes down to trust, right? It's how do we establish trust uh, with customers so that they can trust our applications, they can trust using our services. When it comes to that, what are some things you think that product managers can leverage from a, you know, from a fraud and risk knowledge perspective to build better customer experiences? How do you, how do you feel that sort of plays with build, delivering that customer experience? So you've talked about two things. One was security, the other one was fraud. Uh, we tend to think them as connected. We tend to think them as something that is able to make the correlation. It's not that easy. And you have a lot of people talking about security. You have people talking about fraud. And a lot of times people think they are the same. In security, you have someone that wants to explore a door. Uh, and in frauds, there is a deliberate intention of making money. I tend to use an analogy and to explain the differences between the two. One is security. You get into the airport and you have someone that is looking at uh, devices that you are taking on the airport, all those things. And when you talk about fraud, is you pass the airport and you now have to start um, looking at uh, the different patterns that you are doing to see if you are going to, to commit any fraud. So while the first ones are concerned about a specific set that is, okay, are you taking a gun in the airport? Are you taking uh, any other malicious device, okay? Or crossing the border with uh, any malicious device? After that, security doesn't care anymore. Looking at the patterns and how you are behaving when you enter a country, it's something that is more on the fraud. And translating that into business, one thing is you exploit a network. You see that, for instance, where people uh, get identities. And after that, you see those being sold on the dark web. And fraud is, okay, this information was stolen. Now I'm going to monetize it. So there is a different rationale. And for you to address fraud, you need to understand the security uh, exploits that occur. But for you to understand fraud, you need to look at different patterns. That is, okay, someone is using this credit card and it was listed on the target list that was previously hijacked. At the same time, you see this credit card is not associated with this email and this person is uh, acquiring the most expensive service that we have. So these kind of correlations are different from security is more on the IT, fraud is more on the business side. Yeah, I think that's a really important separation as well as, right? Like they're related, as you mentioned, but they are very separate. Staying on that theme of security for a second, what security controls do you think companies should consider implementing in order to make their application and that experience more secure for their users? That is a very good question, since I'm not an expert on security, but I've seen creativity sometimes is one of the most discarded topics to address. You see people putting controls so that you cannot send an email, you cannot send confidential information, and then someone picks on the phone and they, they take a picture of the screen. So I think... You need to analyze all the scenarios, almost like creating security risk metrics 
in order to understand where the problems might arrive. And from there, you start uh, plug the holes in order to avoid any security breaches. Yeah, I think that's a really good point as well. It's just it's a layered approach, right? There's no single no single method or silver bullet, as they say, to really preventing breaches, as you kind of mentioned, or account takeovers. It's really about having that layered approach, I think, to security. Shifting gears a little bit to innovation and, and just really want to touch on your product management experience as well. When you think about innovation, do you have any stories of your greatest product innovation? One of the things that we were doing as part of our fraud product was talking with the fraud managers and understanding what they wanted to achieve. So a lot of times they wanted a platform, they wanted flexibility on top of that platform, but at the same time, they wanted the scenarios already designed there. And that's what we have been doing for the last uh, 20 years. And one of the things that I started to learn was the entire internal chain and seeing first fraudsters are reporting to an auditing department that is reporting to a CFO. And you start to, to see that there was a gap in terms of the end-to-end cycle of the product itself. And what you start to also learn is that there are people that understand very well IT and where to get the information while there are uh, other teams that know very well how to create risk metrics. And if you are able to connect the, the two teams, because sometimes we are talking about applications that break the silos in connecting data, but at the same time, how the, the teams work, they still keep the silos there. Each one of them use their tools. And that is one of the most interesting projects that we are currently doing that is bringing different teams to talk their own language and start uh, mixing each of the language that they speak in order to bring the outcomes to detect fraud. I think that collaboration that you mentioned between departments is so critical when you're building applications uh, as well, and even just building really great products and building those experiences. In your opinion, thinking about either a successful product that you've launched in your previous product marketing experience or your current um, product experience as well, what do you think it takes to build a successful like B2B product? That's the $5 million question. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I've learned is you, you want to study really well the market. You can start designing a great product, but uh, if in the end you have a lot of barriers that you have to cross, uh, maybe you should have done your homework much better in order to understand. I don't want to go that path because too many barriers and there will be blockers. Nothing against barriers, but uh, uh, as I said before, for you to put a product in the market, you need to get uh, the snowball effect that when you start small and you have different teams that you have to work with collaborating. So it's good to have, let's say, very good understanding in the market. I've seen teams developing products or trying to develop products for uh, something that they consider a blue ocean, when in fact it was a red ocean and because they were living on a silo, so they have fooled themselves. So I don't 
want to get into that path again. That is someone saying, we have a great idea. I'm totally outside of the, the real market, but I think it's a great idea. Let's do it. And I think it's also important to have different uh, team members with different skills working together in the same path. You can have a great in, in engineering and then sales don't understand the product and they will not be able to sell it. You might be, you might have a, a killer sales guy in the team that uh, in the end will sell everything, but the engineering is not able to to develop or there is no alignment with product management. So in the end, it's not about getting the best product manager, the best engineering, getting the best marketing, getting the best sales, is how you balance those things in order to address the market, at least from my side. One of the things I was going to ask and kind of a follow-up question to this as well is, how can you be sure if you're building the right thing from a product perspective? At this point, um, and based on my experience, uh, I wouldn't developing I wouldn't develop anything without testing it before. And nowadays, you have amazing tools where you can do prototyping, where you can test some of the concepts. So, starting developing a product with testing doesn't make sense anymore. And even sometimes using tools like Figma and you do the prototyping, people think that you are using the real product. So you can collect a lot of information by doing this prototyping. So it makes no sense for you to start developing a product with no fit. Yeah, I think it's that feedback loop, right? The continuous feedback loop of iterating, getting feedback from the marketing customers, building on that feedback. It's, you know, it's not just a build the product, ship the product. It's really a continuous life cycle of how you build in that innovation, I think, as well. I don't believe that you will be able to work with the customer and uh, develop a product. You can bring different customers, of course, and collecting their information and their insights. Uh, looking at the market, you can also look at the trends. Um, I tend to think almost like uh, making a, a great meal where you get different ingredients because if you just get the insights from the customer, they will tend to look at their reality. If you work with just one customer, it will never do a product for you because it will look at his reality and I want this. That's not a product. It's a solution that addresses a specific problem for them. If you work with different customers, you might have people that are biased by the things that they are doing today and they might miss the vision where things are going. And if you are a customer, you expect your provider or uh, the supplier to give you some guidance where things are going. You need to think in advance compared with what customers are currently feeling. I think Henry Ford once said that if I would have listened to what my customers wanted, I would have just built a faster horse, right? And that's why I think it's important to your point of having a lot of ingredients. You need, you know, the feedback from multiple empirical evidence from multiple customers. You need to see where the market is. You need to balance that with the priorities of the company and your vision of where you're headed. And I think all of that, for me anyway, is really how folks can approach building great products that customers love. Because I think that's that's the way is you need that feedback in order to make improvements and make tweaks to, you know, if you, if there's something that is out of balance in the market with customers and their experience, obviously you need to take that into consideration too, but it needs to come from multiple sources. I would definitely agree with you there. 
even sometimes collecting just information, how they work and what are their regular activities, I think it's not enough. Even that you are talking about IT products, I think it's important to understand which are their motivations, uh, what they do outside of the work, because sometimes you might want to develop a product that will empower them in their own organization by picking some of the tasks that they don't tend to mention related to that product. Or if I would develop a product nowadays for someone, I would develop a product that would fit their current functions, but at the same time that allowed them to go sooner to their home while delivering the results that their bosses expect. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense as well. Uh, I was thinking about something when you're talking. We were when we were talking about how you know you're building the right thing, and for me, one of those things that we tend to think about in the software as a service industry is this concept of build it versus buy. Right? A lot of SaaS companies, when they start, if they're starting small, they want to build everything. Right? And so this concept of how do you know you're building the right thing? Well, if it's not your core competency it's probably not the right thing. So I'd love your thoughts if you have any stories on this concept of building versus buying and sort of the product development cycle. In my industry, it's common on telecom for internal teams to develop their own applications. We've seen that for ages, but I think the market itself is changing because if you look at... Um, the market, how the market changed during the pandemic. A lot of people just change jobs every three months to get the salary increase. And a lot of times when you develop uh, these solutions internally, every time that someone leaves the company, you lose all of that knowledge and there is nobody to support it. That's one of the scenarios. Another scenario that I would like to highlight is sometimes for you to translate something into a product, you have different teams, you have processes that need to be designed. And that is very difficult for someone that are developing their own solutions to be able to connect with the different teams and getting the inputs without being biased because they are working uh, as part of a specific team within the organization. Software as a service and how it's designed a lot of times, more than just delivering a solution, it also puts a methodology in place uh, that sometimes people don't like, and that's why they develop their own solutions. But um, that is also a blocker for them to evolve from what has been developed with best of breed by listening to different customers, how a solution translates also, how a process should be designed. And I think there are a lot of learnings there. Of course, everybody will say, okay, uh, there is the price. We have this team. We don't know what to do, but what to do with them. And depending on the region of the world, you might have some problems fighting these different teams, you know. Um, I tend to see that on Europe and US, they prefer software. In Asia, Sometimes they have huge teams that are allocated to platforms that will say, okay, we will pick on this and we will develop ourselves. There will always be the ones that are paying more attention every time that you are doing a demo. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think that's such a good point. Um, something you talked about earlier was testing. 
I'd love to love to get into kind of how you approach testing and experimentation. I believe that experiments are really critical in driving key customer learnings and understanding, you know, if you are building the right thing or headed down the right path, or do you need to build versus actually procure uh, a solution? But in terms of experience, what's one of the most impactful experiments that you've ever run? Picking back on the product that we are currently developing, so traditionally there was a department that we have not been talking, that was uh, the auditing department. And auditing departments have specific tools for doing the risk assessment. Risk assessment is a very important step in order for you to address revenue assurance and fraud. And um, they typically don't work on IT. So... Because for the last 20 years, I've been developing a product for IT. I had to get into these kind of conversations with these teams. And the first challenge that I had is where I'm going to find these, these people to start to understand how they work and what kind of conversations they had. So an interesting point that we did here was, okay, let's join some of these associations where these people meet and we don't have anything to discuss there, but we want to listen to see how they discuss it and to see uh, how they want to take it further from the IT side because we come from IT and um, we are going to listen to them, see what they are requesting from data analytics and see how they work. So we try to translate that once again, as I said, I love Figma and the capability to do prototyping. Sometimes people don't even understand they are working on prototypes and developing a script where people can execute a specific um, action based on the things that we've defined. And it was a really good experience to understand that these teams were saying, okay, this was what we were missing this is taking a step further in what we were thinking about. And uh, sometimes we have to change emails and making calls to understand how to deploy these controls using data analytics. And now you have brought all the process under one single tool so that we can close the loop as you previously mentioned. So that was rewarding. And I think uh, it was a, an excellent uh, project to run. This concept of testing messaging, right? You, you mentioned getting some time with the IT department and those like that that audience. I think in addition to building really great products, it's also important to understand the language that your customers are speaking in order to understand how you can package it, position it, and even just message it, right? Uh, in order for them to find your system in the first place. So I think that element for me of what you just said is I think a really important part of that process of that product creation process. Um, and product management processes, the, the the messaging and the marketing and understanding how your customers think about solving that problem in the first place. I thought that was a really great point. I tend to agree with you uh, that communication is an important factor, but I think it works both ways. If you start communicating with different teams, you are able to see all of them uh, throwing their expectations. And uh, from all the the noise that you will hear, but at the same time, the good ideas, you are able to assemble something that connects the dots that is amazing and it's a recipe for success. I was thinking a little around even your experience from product marketing to, to product management, uh, where obviously you are now. In thinking about your product and management uh, experience and building great products, 
How would you describe the ups, the downs, the highs, the lows of creating a product? You know, what's great about that process? What do you think still is being improved? The most painful one for sure will be to deal with sales. <laughs> they always have the missing requirement that uh, you don't have in the product. And it will be the one that for sure will bring a lot of customers. Um, but you need to balance. Sometimes you get some some good ideas there if you are able to combine the different teams and uh, extract all the positive points from the different teams, sales, marketing, uh, engineering, because every time that you say, okay, we have a new requirement, you will see the guys from engineering, we are already overloaded, what do you want to discard? So you need to balance, you need to balance between uh, sales, uh, engineering, all the great ideas that you will have on top of your mind. So I think the hardest decision is for you to say no, but the even hardest one is when you don't say no, when you should have said it, okay? Because uh, you might have a decision that you have taken in the past that will take you for, uh, for years in terms of negative impact. So you need to think in advance. Uh, if you are taking a decision, will it have a long-term impact or uh, it will be something, okay, it's painful now, but we need to do it. And uh, later we will go into another path. I think that's great advice. What about aspiring product managers looking to get into product management? What advice would you impart on them uh, if they're trying to get into the tech industry? Understanding the different stakeholders within the organization is the first step because they will have to communicate with all of them. I don't believe in someone that says, okay, I, I want to be a techie and I will just be a techie. Um, you might need to interact with management. You might need to interact with sales and you should be, be uh, an excellent guy at communication internally and externally. But uh, at the same time, you need to have a vision and you need to start thinking from the vision for you to start uh, drilling down into each of the requirements of the product because the vision will be the argument that you will use every time that you say no or every time that you say I'm going to I'm going into that path because in two, three years I see this thing happening. Something you said earlier that really resonated with me in terms of underrated product management skills is this ability and knowing when to say no, right? What are some other underrated product management skills you feel that really great product managers have? Storytelling. Yeah, that's such a good one. Product manager, you know how to tell, how to be a storyteller. You need to do storytelling for the ones that are going to sponsor your product. I'm talking about the management or your manager. You need to be an inspiring person to do storytelling into the engineers so that they all get in the same mood. And if you want to test it in front of the customers, you might also want to do some storytelling in order to, to sell it. Only have a couple minutes left. I think we'll get into some some quick hits. Uh, you know, get to know you a little more. What is the your favorite thing that you're either reading or watching right now? 
So I'm not a techie guy. Currently, I'm watching a TV show uh, that is Dave. I was a big fan of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I don't know if you know it. Yeah. And uh, Dave gets into the same mood. And so I'm currently following Dave, and I think it's an excellent so show. Uh, totally outside of the techie world. Oh, that's excellent. I'll have to check that one out for sure. Uh, you've obviously traveled to quite a few places you know, around the world. Where is one place that you would live if you had to live? I love to live in Portugal because it's my base and uh, I have the beach, I have the country, I have the, the great food. So let me do it the other way around. I will tell you one of the amazing places that I've been that I loved. So um, I did backpacking to Peru and stayed living with the, the Indians in Lake Tiki, Tiki Taka for one weekend. And it was an amazing experience living in the middle of the lake with the Indians. That does sound actually pretty incredible. Last question for me is, what is the best piece of tech advice that you've ever gotten? Get outside of techie when you get outside of the office. So understand all the cultures, uh, whether it's someone that loves art, whether it's a punk rocker or uh, something, someone that is conservative, because a lot of the times these are the profiles of your customers and while you have the opportunity to be a techie in the office, you want to get diversity outside of the office in order to make amazing products. I think that's a really good point. You actually led me to think about one last question, I swear. Um, what is the tech advancement that you're most excited about? Extending the human body with technology to make uh, better humans, at least uh, to start replacing the human organs with some techies. <laughs> that's, an, that's an interesting one. And now with Neuralink, it's becoming increasingly possible, right? Well, Carlos, maybe give us some insight. Where can folks find you online? How do they get in touch with you outside of the podcast? If you come to Portugal, feel free to contact me on LinkedIn, for sure. And you, of course, you can contact me on LinkedIn, Carlos Marx at Mobilion. Amazing. Well, Carlos, thank you so much for taking the time with us today on the Mistaken Identity Podcast. Really enjoyed having you as a guest. Uh, thank you again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mistaken Identity, a podcast brought to you by Okta. As the leading independent identity partner, we free everyone to safely use any technology anywhere on any device or app. Find us at Okta.com.